Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, welcome to the Standard Times editorial board. We're here to discuss um, uh, the upcoming legislative session and um, uh, ideas that the legislature and the governor might have for um, reforming the the state's funding system. Uh, uh, And uh, we've made some progress in that last year, and um, uh, uh, with the growth of charter schools and other issues in terms of uh, uh, health care, special education costs, and um, English language learner costs, uh, there is a, a feeling that, that that funding formula needs to be revisited. So we're, we're here to learn what you guys uh, have to say. We're, we're, we're happy to, to have a bipartisan group. And so I'm Jack Spillane, the editorial page editor. We're going to... Why are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Shane Trimble, I'm a citizen member of the editorial board and also the director of transit planning for SRTI. Beth Purdue, editor of the Standard. Mark I represent the Bedford for Haven, Dartmouth, Mattapoise, and a cushion in the Senate. Chris Markey, I represent Dartmouth and a little piece of New Bedford, Wards 3. Good morning, I'm Senator Michael Rodericks. I represent um, seven communities in the South Coast Westport, Fall River, Somerset, Swansea, Freetown, Lakeville, and Rochester. In this prior session, I served as the Senate Majority Whip and the Senate Chair of the Committee on Ethics. Good morning, Susan Williams Gifford, and I am State Representative from Wareham, for Wareham, Carver, and Middleborough. And uh, I'm Bill Strauss from Mattapoisett, State Representative. I represent the towns of Marion, Mattapoisett, Rochester, Fairhaven, and also a piece of New Bedford. Okay, so we'll leave it open to whoever wants to start first. Uh, we're here to hear from what you uh, have to say and what are the uh, important things for us to know about this, this session and this, um, this effort to look at the funding formula. <laughs> we didn't want to pick one of you to go first because we thought then we'd have to go one by one by one. So, I, you know, I realize that that opening is a little harder, but... I nominate the dean of the delegation. <laughs> I, I was thinking I first. should be excused because of a conflict of interest. <laughs> Shane is my mother's neighbor and she loves him, so I think <laughs> you shouldn't be allowed to question me. Well, okay. she, she sold the house, so... Uh, it's unbelievable. After 60 years, very difficult, uh, actually, very sad. But uh, she's healthy and that's what's happy. So we resolve the conflict. (laughs) (laughs) So we know this topic is really getting a lot of attention right now. We know that you as legislators looked at this last session. We know that there are some disagreements about what happens. Can we say across the board, though, does everyone agree that something needs to change? Absolutely. I'll I'll start and say that um, since the foundation... Budget Review Commission has completed its work back in 2015, um, and I'll only speak from us in the Senate. Uh, we have been very committed uh, in trying to implement some of those recommendations of the Foundation Budget Review uh, Commission, looking at really four areas that are the real cost drivers in uh, K through 12 education: healthcare costs, English language learners, uh, low income students and how you measure 
uh, uh, low-income students in the fourth one which escapes me special edu in special education uh, we have over the years uh, addressed many of those issues independently um, but not to, to the degree uh, that uh, has relieved our local communities on real pressure points in those four areas. Uh, we certainly heard from uh, Senate President Spilker in her address uh, when we were sworn in uh, last week that she wants to be quote unquote bold and this is uh, this along with uh, transportation and health care, education funding along with transportation and health care are issues that she wants to tackle in a comprehensive way. Uh, this legislative session uh, we heard from Governor Baker uh, that he wants to address the education funding uh, issue also in a very comprehensive way uh, to the point where he um, just yesterday uh, stated that he's going to file a standalone bill just on this issue um, so that it doesn't get mired um, in the budget debate which it certainly will be discussed uh, as we uh, debate the FY20 general operating budget um, you know but the devil's always in the details and there's lots of details and um, you know how much money can we afford to spend on it where does the money come from yep. uh, do we do it out of existing revenues do we create new revenues uh, how do you deal with the uh, conflict between urban and suburban yep. schools uh, very very controversial and I'm confident we haven't yet heard from the speaker but I'm sure we will soon when he does his address to the Commonwealth and I'm assuming this will be a top of his agenda also is that scheduled yeah. just welcome to Peter Muse who's a, another member of our citizen advisory board I am Mike Rogers good morning yeah you know Peter Gifford. yes yeah. thank you very much Peter's with uh, nice first see the team. don't don't uh, don't go to the bank looking like that. No, I, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a bit, it's a bit You're on video problem. already. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Guys. Always, uh, yeah. yeah. Happy to have you. So the, yeah. the house. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the speaker hasn't scheduled his speech, but uh, there are some few very obvious things. Um, the uh, uh, and it's all. I think it's all good positive things uh, I remember when when Mark and I joined the legislature there was a almost identical setting when we were first sworn in where at the end of the prior legislature they had come very close mm -hmm. on uh, an ed reform piece and, and just just you know, inches away so to speak and there was a uh, very clear public consensus uh, for the legislature at that time, a little less so with the, the then governor, but uh, that ed reform needed to be addressed. And almost all of the same issues were pending then. Can I ask and what year you're in? Somehow I forgot to mention it. Right? <laughs> uh, Mark, when, when 1993. was it? 1993. Okay, yeah. you 1993. Right. It wasn't for far. Okay. And, Great and, excuse for term limits. And... Uh, <laughs> When we came in, the climate was so clear that we had to, in the new legislature, had to deal with it that at that time, uh, both the House and Senate devoted uh, uh, time in January, right away at the beginning of the session, to, to deal standalone with, with ed reform, both as to funding and organizational structure, which is less, I think, on anyone's agenda now, because I think 
some of those things in terms of the relationship of school committees, superintendents, management issues, uh, really has worked quite well, I think. Uh, so it, we're back to the funding side, which obviously population shift, uh, growth in certain communities that was occurring then is not occurring and vice versa. So where we are, and, and the reason I, I, I dwell on, on what we did successfully then was in the, what be, the bill that became law, and I think this was the missing piece that separated the House and Senate last summer, but will be filled, I think everyone's optimistic, was that the final piece of legislation, which um, uh, not everyone voted for, but we did, uh, Senator and I, and, everyone else from around here, as I recall, was we not only said there's a target for how much added state revenue comes into the Chapter 70 uh, funding for our public schools, but we will lay out in the legislation the schedule. What I think separated not by anyone's bad intentions, but I think that what separated the House and Senate last summer was uh, uh, we didn't have the schedule yet. So if you pick a number, whether it's one billion more in Chapter 70 or one and a half billion, whatever the number, uh, when we did this in the 90s, we said we will add 200 and we'll add 200 more on top of that the next year, and we had a set schedule over five years to the point where we were spending a billion dollars more to assist uh, local school districts. So everyone has the same goal, which ultimately is that uh, whether we make it there or not, that the quality of the education that the children receive, K through 12, should be as uh, top-notch regardless of where, what school system they're in. It's, a, it, it, you know, it's an enviable target. But, but it's a good target even if you know, we fall short. What was missing last year, we didn't have that schedule. How are we gonna get there at what pace? And, and the legislation that was in conference between the two chambers set up a process, but not a number, where it promised that each year, Ways and Means and the commissioner and all the rest would get together and pick a number. The feeling in the House was, we should do the complete package. Let's set the full schedule so everyone knows, both from a, uh, uh, an honesty standpoint, how quickly are we gonna get there, but also then to allow us to answer the tough questions about where's the money gonna come from. It's not enough, obviously, to say we're gonna spend this much. It was, it's gotta be paid for. Right. So, uh, but I think everyone's quite optimistic that this is, uh, one of the top two, three, four things that the legislature needs to address. And optimistic about all four points? Oh, okay. Well, I, I'm only optimistic because what happened at the end of the last session was uh, uh, just a complete irresponsibility on, the, uh, on behalf of the legislature. I mean, give me a break. It's like it's optimistic because it's now bubbled up to the point where it needs to get done, and it should have been done. Uh, yesterday. I don't think we need to study it more. I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time talking about process. I think basically when people say um, it's not about the money, it usually is, although I don't think you can do this is in 93. It wasn't done perfectly, 
but we didn't throw money at it without reform. Well, now a lot of the reform has been done. Things evolve. You look at best practices here and elsewhere, um, and, and you tweak things. But the bottom line is, for those that are, that are distressed by the achievement gap, which means cities like New Bedford, uh, it is about money. And all four of them should have been dealt with last year at the end of the conference. The two big ones, uh, like uh, English uh, language learning and low income, are what is the most important to this city. There's another myth that is often repeated over and over and over, mainly by the leadership on Beacon Hill, but then it trickles down, uh, and that is we don't have the money. We have the money now, we had it yesterday, we'll have it tomorrow. Even if, as I predict, we'll come into tougher times. Uh, I'm a numbers guy, I study the economy every day. I studied it for four years, uh, you know, the best and worst learning experience one can have is four years of ways and means, and that included years with money and years with 9C cuts with revenue falling off a cliff. There's always money. There's not a willingness to cut uh, and prioritize. So we give away billions and billions and billions of dollars in corporate tax cuts, some of which are useful, and maybe they ought to be um, looked at and analyzed and re-upped. Everything else ought to be sunsetted, and we ought to force each special interest, and I say that in big quotes, and their block and tacklers in the legislature, which means folks that are cozy with lobbyists that come in and do things like defend a film tax credit that's not defensible, or defend a billion dollars to the biotech industry when the leaders of that industry must just smirk. They must watch the politicians walk outside the room and go, there they go, let's just do a ribbon, cut them, ribbon cutting with them in six months and everything will be fine. It's a thriving industry that's here for a reason, and it isn't for the billion dollars that we've thrown away. So if you need to find money and you don't have the ability to raise revenue, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't discuss new forms of revenue, fine, discuss it. But I'm pretty progressive and I voted against the sales tax increase because that was a regressive tax on people who couldn't afford it. And I voted against the transportation tax for the simple reason that for 10 years, I asked the Senate president at the time, it was, it was uh, Travellini and Murray, um, who were quite frankly very cozy with lobbyists, and we just said, have a discussion about what tax cuts actually induce behavior that results in the mission statement of that tax cut. When you said, we're going to you know, incentivize the financial services industry so we can create and retain jobs. So 20 years later, the entire industry has changed. They employ less than half the people they promised to retain, and there's no clawback because the legislature is spending other people's money. So as much as I think a good discussion in the millionaire's tax certainly would have been in some ways a relatively easy way to fund this, uh, as, as much as I think that should be discussed, what we should be doing is looking at the billions and billions of dollars of corporate tax credits that come very well lobbied, so it's not without some pain, I guess, for some people, um, and throw that money back in the pot. It's easy to pay. I mean, the estimates are 700 million, a billion, a billion and a half. Uh, it's peanuts compared to what we give away if we stop some of the corporate giveaways. Reactions to that? Uh well, I'll chime in. Uh, first thing I want to say is that uh, what Bill said um, is is absolutely correct. And uh, as the, my you know, the minority party had a member on the conference committee that was trying very diligently to, to hammer out a, a deal at the last minute. And what Bill said is absolutely on spot on with with her assessment as to what was happening at the end. It's just. Um, there was a, there was a there was a fundamental difference between the the House philosophy and the Senate philosophy, but I do agree that uh, I think we're all in agreement that 
this is a hot button issue for all of us. I don't believe that any of us, with the exception of my colleague here from Metapoise, that we don't represent wealthy communities. <laughs> I've been to Westport Harbor. Oh, okay. It's nice. <laughs> All right. Nice summer community. I had to give, but no, I, I think um, you know. I the the, the bill that here. Right here. Right here. Uh, uh, Senator Chang Diaz filed. Uh, that was the basically the, the catalyst for, for getting this moving. Uh, had widespread bipartisan support. Um, there definitely is support uh, from um, you know, the minority party in moving this forward. I think that the big question is where's the revenue going to come from? And uh, I do think that uh, we need to wait and see what's going to come forward. Uh, as was said, the governor's going to file a standalone bill on this. Um, he had also made a commitment in his uh, 2020 uh, uh, budget recommendations that he was going to include additional funding for some of those areas. Again, not a fix for everything that's wrong, but realizing that there are problems that we have to address before we may, may be able to get the overall big picture uh, on the formula uh, uh, changes done. So um, I think we're all pretty much in agreement that something needs to be done. The formula, since I've been in office in 2003, this is something that, that I've been talking about for 16 years. So it's not something new. It's been out there. Everybody knows it. it's been a problem, but the problem has just been, you know, manifesting and festering, and you know, with with the influx of uh, you know the English language learners that are coming in, um, the you know, out of district special education, um, we're we're really being hard hit, especially in the South Coast area. And and I know that uh, as a delegation, I'm sure we're all going to be working together very diligently to try to get get this done. Is, is your inclination um, to do it without new revenue uh, or, or because of the Supreme Court decision or to, or to look at that too? Well, I do have to say that I agree with what Mark had said about that, that, it, that we should be looking at the, the issue of the corporate tax credits and the film tax credits and sunset those and look at those and on a recurring basis, um, you know, not just give them an open-ended, you know, checkbook, so to speak, or, you know, an open-ended check. Um, but, I mean, we need, to, we need to look at everything. We need to look at the possibility of other revenue sources, although we have $2 billion sitting in our rainy day fund, which, was, which would certainly be, you know, some of that money would go a long way to uh, implementing possibly like a phase one of of the changes to the to the funding formula so everything's on the table at this point I'll have to say and you know you can't rule anything out I think uh, we obviously need new, new revenues to get it that's at the end of the day we can we can say all these things um, about this but unlike the film tax credit we vote on it every year on all the tax credit anything tax related anything revenue related we vote on every year and it gets renewed every year I, 
um, I don't think a millionaire's tax is the way to go. Um, I think we need to, we just lowered the income tax. I think we need to increase the income tax and increase the earned income uh, tax credit so that the that can be much like um, was proposed, I think, in the 2013 uh, budget by Governor Patrick. At the end of the day, the millionaire's tax is so easy politically for all of us, right? I mean, you, you, you vote for it and then you put it in the uh, Constitution. It allows no flexibility for the people who come next in line. You're putting a surcharge on people who make a lot of money and somehow uh, that's the answer is just to keep taxing the rich. I think in the end, you have to look at it in a balanced approach. When you rely on such a small amount of people to produce that larger income, when the economy crashes, when the capital gains goes down, those revenues are going to go down dramatically. And when they go down dramatically, we're back here trying to justify why we're cutting everything else that we've just increased. We need to be responsible. We need to take a vote that says, hey, it's time for us to increase taxes a little bit. If you went up to 5.5%, you would have, you know, for a person making $100,000 a year, it's an extra 500 bucks. I think someone can live with that. If the idea is, is that we want to make sure, again, I don't believe that the millionaire's tax is appropriate for a variety of reasons. One, economically, it's horrible because of those, those ideas, at least in my mind. And secondly is, we're there to make sure that the money is spent appropriately. If we think more money should go to education, then we should put it there. If we think more should go towards transportation, we should put it there. It shouldn't be in the Constitution to tell us where to spend the money or not. We're elected officials. We're going to be accountable. We will be. So, so you guys have a – the Democrats have a supermajority in the legislature. The governor was unlikely to sign any kind of income tax increase. Do you have, have the votes in I, that supermajority to override his I, veto? I have no idea. You're asking me my opinion. I don't, I, I, I don't count votes. It's, it's the first two weeks. We've been sworn in for four or five days now. I have no idea what – if you're looking for a quick result and say, hey, it's going to happen, I don't know. But if you're asking me what my opinion is, is I think a broad-based tax increase that's slight, that's not huge, is a better, safer way in the long term for the economy than a millionaire's tax, which politically is the easiest thing for all of us to do. Other people agree with that? I think both Brett Markey and Senator Montigny both strike, and everyone strikes a theme that, you know, came here to talk about education funding in the Foundation Budget Review Commission, but the debate and the discussion always turns to money and revenue because it costs money. And the most difficult thing to do in the legislature or in public is to have an adult conversation about taxes. Um, and we've attempted, prior to, to coming in onto leadership, I did serve for four years as the chair of the Senate Revenue Committee, and we try to do things like amend uh, the film tax rate. Um, I mean, do we think that it was a worthwhile investment for the Commonwealth to spend $89 million in FY17 for the film industry, where 74% of that money goes out of state, where we are paying, the taxpayers of Massachusetts are paying 25% of the salaries of all the Hollywood movie stars and starlets, because that's what's happening. Um, but, you know, we run we were unsuccessful to 
to amend that. Uh, we also looked at um, areas of this new so-called 21st century disruptive economy, people call it, Airbnb, for instance, short-term rentals that we did finally get over the goal line uh, at the end of the last session, and that's new revenue. Um, I think it's grossly understated at $25 million. Uh, um, and it's grossly understated because there's really no real data because so much of that activity happens in the underground economy. Um, and um, just this week we're hearing about car sharing and the whole new 21st century disruptive economy of, you know, Airbnb for your automobiles, uh, where you share your vehicles. So you need to look at a combination of looking at and not many people do pay attention, Senator Montigny certainly does, on the tax expenditure budget. It's billions of dollars that with these, especially if they're refundable <coughs> tax credits, it's just like a line item in a budget. You're writing a check uh, in, in these tax credits. We need to look at that. We have begun implementing uh, over the last five years that all tax credits are now sunsetted. Um, so there's no, it does not go on into perpetuity until someone decides to take action to amend or rescind them, but they have to be looked at every five years uh, for us to make a determination if we think it's still a responsible investment of tax dollars uh, for the Commonwealth. Uh, so you need to look at a combination of possibly new, <coughs> new revenue, whether it's income tax, millionaire's tax, whatever new sort of tax is, or adjusting our tax codes um, so that it better reflects what our priorities are today. So, Jack, you had asked a question as to whether the, in, in voting for uh, focusing on education, whether that would be done or it has to be done linked with uh, the revenue piece. Probably not in, in so explicit a, a trade. Uh, when we've done these things, it's, and that's the importance of what I was trying to express earlier about knowing what our out-year uh, commitments are for education. So let's, you know, what is the five or six-year schedule of, of increases? And then it fits in with the overall budget so that I don't think you need a specific education revenue piece uh, in order to do this, but you have to do it within the rest of, of, of the pie and in any individual budget year. So now we begin discussions about fiscal year 2020, which begins July 1. So we approve a budget in the spring based on a revenue schedule, predicted revenue schedule that goes on for the next 14 or 15 months. And that's why you have mid-year corrections and things like that. But education, of course, doesn't just sit in the vacuum. We have uh, the biggest single item uh, of health care that we uh, take care of in one way or another in, in the annual budget. And, and we had, we're going to have to navigate that with obviously some uncertainty as to whether the federal government is still a partner or not. Uh, and then transportation, which not surprisingly I hope coming from me, uh, I have the feeling that we don't spend enough only last month in, in one of their uh, asset management review documents that is now public but hasn't for some reason made it online, the administration has acknowledged that 
our current spending on roads and bridges over the next decade actually takes us backwards in terms of our state of good repair for our roads and bridges to get mass transit. So even the administration has quietly acknowledged that we don't spend enough on transportation anymore just to stay level. So uh, we'll do the education, but uh, I think the public has to understand there are uh, other critical things that are, are part of a $40 billion annual budget and separate capital budget. Uh, but to your question, does this get linked to a specific tax fee revenue item? I, I don't think so. I don't think that's how it would play out. Do they need to be addressed together? Because the, there's such big issues, health care, transportation, education. It, it, it's a, I, I, I really believe the legislature has proved over the years that it's capable of keeping those things in mind as it does each of these pieces. But the easy stuff is off the table. I agree with Chris that the easier of the options was a millionaire's tax, which, by the way, I gleefully support. Um, I stress the word gleeful. Uh, but I, I get his points on it. And I also do believe it was an easier uh, way to sweep at least a couple of those things off the table. Now that that's gone, or maybe it isn't, who knows what, what uh, iteration will come back to address the constitutional issue. But you can't talk about education without talking about revenue. You can't talk about revenue without admitting that there are no easy options. So the likelihood, I, I also don't votes, but the one benefit I have as chairman of rules in the legislature is all of the members come to me on their bills and you pick things up. What are their real priorities? What are they really looking for? What are the things that they are troubled by when a president uh, you know, utters a priority in a, in a you know, swearing in or, or over the last three and a half years with the uh, Karen Spilka's predecessor? I don't believe the votes are there um, for an increase in the income tax. Who knows? That's somebody else's role. Uh, to count those votes, um, but again, I will personalize it. I'm a progressive, and I don't stand behind that. But after four years watching a budget and watching the waste, it's very difficult not to be fiscally conservative with other people's money. Now, I used to look at folks that said they were socially liberal and fiscally conservative as somewhat hypocritical. I don't think you need to be. I think everyone should be against what I saw in my first maintenance meetings when I looked at a budget with no rationale and it was just, oh, well, we did that before. And I'll just mention one reason why I feel so strongly that there are revenues. One year sitting in these maintenance meetings, which sometimes would last until midnight and they'd be 12 hours long, and I said to my staff, like, you can't answer me. Like, who earmarked this? Like, I know when I earmarked the Zyterium Theater, it's there for a reason. Uh, and I have to defend that or at least prioritize it in a zero-sum game of my priorities. So we did a little trick. We wiped out all of the earmarks one year. Now, two things that happened from that. One, they had to come and ask the chairman of ways and means for something, which makes it easier for me to then line up their votes on the tough thing. So it was a, a political exercise. But another magical thing happened. Half the earmarks went away and no one requested them. Multiply that by hundreds of millions of dollars of wasted money. Then I started to get into the tax cuts, and I come from that with a little different, I know we're here on ed reform, but if you're talking about 700 million to a billion and a half, you have to talk about uh, the revenue. Uh, I came out of the Chamber of Commerce, I didn't come out of the liberal think tank, and I never had a business executive say to me, the only reason we located in X was because you gave us some peanuts. 
But if you give them to us, I have a fiduciary responsibility, thank you. Now remember, they were talking to me as their economic developer. So they're telling me the unvarnished truth of what makes decisions. It's, it's, and by the way, it's far less varnished when it comes to industries like the biotech industry, that it really is, it really is peanut. So we had the Secretary of Economic Affairs before, a committee I chaired at the time, I think it was a post audit, and I simply asked a question. I wasn't setting him up, although by the redness of his face, I knew that it turned into be a setup question. I simply asked him, can you quantify the number of jobs created by this program that you claim creates jobs? No, we'll get back to you. He's never gotten back to me. He's since left the building. Um, so when you multiply that out by billions and billions of dollars, and you realize that it is very difficult to change that policy because of the power of the industry and the lobbyists, but then you look at how much more difficult it would be to raise general revenues. I, I think you have to keep coming back to something that is completely unjustifiable. And I say that because I think the achievement gap in this city uh, and in similar cities and demographics across the state is a crisis. Of course, we don't really respond in a crisis way when something isn't acute. So when a gas explosion happens and people die, everyone responds to the crisis, starting with first responders and even politicians. When something slips, like an economy does, or something grows slowly, like an achievement gap or an income gap does, um, you, it's almost like a bear market you, or a recession. You never really know until you look back and look at all the stats and go, why didn't we see that? Uh, it's as plain as day when you look at all of the demographics. You look at, if you are wealthy, you can send your kid to Tabor. You can even actually make a donation and get a tax credit and maybe get him or her in our legacy program. But then, if they're struggling, they don't have to take the MCAS. But we say to kids that are struggling to survive your failure um, in the public schools, uh, even if you have no one at home helping you. I mean, let, let's like kind of strip the varnish off. I mean, you know, we have this this myth that everybody's got equal education, particularly in Massachusetts. We're number one, right? I mean, there are, there are states that are a lot more conservative with universal pre-K, and yet we say we don't have the money. Um, the achievement gap is going to be expensive to fill. I'll, I'll end this part of the commentary with this. I mean, when, when Tip O'Neill said all politics is local, no, it's personal, and it is to a legislator, too. So, of course, we represent our philosophy, we represent our constituency, we represent our experiences, so if we chair judiciary, we have a lot more experience, and I'll call Chris, actually, and, 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 and he doesn't always uh, uh, like that I don't always agree with him, but I know I can get expertise from him that I don't have because I didn't sit there as a prosecutor. I have an expertise in numbers, and I look at it and say, we can do this, but not as long as, for instance, we say, like the way we the way we sort of buy the vote of someone who represents a wealthy suburb is we say, oh, well, we'll give you a little bit of minimum aid. You know, a minimum aid is literally like, we kind of want your vote and don't want you to say anything, so we're gonna throw Lincoln and Concord $50,000. And we're sitting here in this community worried about how we're going to get people through high school and into college and into the mainstream economy. So he raises, you raise a lot of good points, and I sort of want to shift the conversation if we can because we are going to run out of time, and I know you're all busy, but we've talked a lot about funding. But one of the things you're raising too is, I think, Senator Rodgers, you raised it right at the beginning, is this kind of uh, competing interest of suburbs and cities and where this is going to go for that. Um, so I could, but it's, it's happening in the city. Yeah, that's true. It's, what do you mean you it's know, happening uh, in the city? You know, uh, vocational school has more students than New Bedford High School. Yeah. Okay. 
a vocational school is a vocational school where you learn a trade. When you have 90% of your vocational school graduates going on to college, yeah, it's great and it's, it's a nice success story, but their success is coming at a significant great cost to the high school. So you're saying competing interests even yeah, within and the Yeah, and then the charter schools, the same thing. I mean, essentially the, the vocational school is a charter school now. I mean, that's essentially what it is. And I can't blame them for that. I mean, they're, they're doing wonderful things there and helping kids out. That raises an interesting point. Whatever reform uh, the state settles on, should it be tied to charter the charter formula in the vocational uh, the way schools are. I, I, I don't know if I don't know enough about that in relation to the vocational schools. I don't know that. I don't know if uh, Neshoba Valley vocational tech is as successful as Greater New Bedford vocational tech. I don't know how the other schools do, but I can I can tell you that I, I look at it as I got high school age children who just recently graduated, and I can tell you that. There was a group of kids that, when in the 80s when I was in high school, would have absolutely gone to New Bedford High School. Their families are supportive of their education. They value education. They're not the super students. They're not the poor students. They're not the difficult um, behavioral issues. Those kids are now not going to yep. New Bedford High School. It's a crisis. And they are going to a vocational school. Why? Well, it makes a lot of financial sense, too. They're going to go there. They're going to learn a trade. Well, they're in college. They can work as a plumber, electrician, or do whatever. And all of that happens. What happens now is the percentage of those kids has reduced at the high school. Now the percentage of high school kids are taking the kids who are academically troubled at vocational schools and putting them into an academic setting where they're never going to achieve what, they, what, right. what the vocational schools would have given them. No, I think... We're, we're so that, that, that gap, that's why the gap is growing. The gap is growing because we don't have... Right. We, 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 have, we have the city right now saying that they're going to be in crisis if this charter school that wants 1,000 seats, maybe they get 500. The governor is a big supporter of charter schools. Um, whether you take the mayor's numbers or, or, or not, clearly there are issues related to the charter uh, reimbursement formula and um, the vocational... Um, <coughs> They get a lot more money than the than the comprehensive high school does, and so there are there are there are issues of inequity connected to that. Can you can you connect one or the other? Uh, I'll comment. I'll yeah. comment as someone. I don't know who else at this table. I'm I'm a strong supporter of charter schools, and it's vastly different than vocational schools. The big difference is charter schools enrollment is done out of a blind draw. I've attended them. Literally, they draw names out of a hat. Whereas our vocational schools you have to apply for, and they take the best and the brightest. They absolutely cream uh, yeah. the best and the brightest, where the charter schools don't. Yeah. And but the charter schools have to, you have, the parent has to opt in. So there is some. The, that, par the parent has to opt in. Let me finish. Um, maybe we go to an opt out. So let's go to opt out. I'd support that as a charter school uh, proponent, where every student has the ability and has their name in the hat for a blind draw. They draw their quota. And parent, do you want your child to go? I can't speak for New Bedford Charter Schools. I don't represent them. I know we have two in Fall River that are tremendously successful, that are non-controversial, that there's a good working relationship between the charter school administration and uh, the city administration. And if you look at their demographics, they are 
identical in special needs, in English language learners, as low-income students. The numbers are almost identical. I do not buy, and I guess the principal difference I have with some local municipal school leaders is that when I hear the premise that you're taking money away from the local district school, it's not the local district school's money. It's the parents' money, it's the children's money, it's the students' money, and the money follows the student. Now, the funding formula for charter schools in Massachusetts, which is the most robust in the country by far, the problem is we in the legislature only funded it about 75%. Even at 75%, it's still the most robust. We still reimburse a community 100% in the first year for the student that's not going there. 75% the second year for a student that's not going there. 50% for the third year for a student that's not going there. It's only in the fourth and fifth year that the reimbursement level is lower than what we should be funding for. So the real raid, and I agree with Chris, I don't, I, this shocks me that there's more students at New Bedford vote than New Bedford High School. Yep. Well, the, the, wow. Not only that, but because, wow. because they have a... I, they, I did not know because that. Because they are able to... Because they are able to reject kids who have poor attendance, uh, discipline problems of any sort, and poor grades, the, the kid, that, that makes the Bedford High School a much more homogenous under, underclass school. Right. The well, charter no, schools cannot I, do I that. Understand. So I, I, the charter schools are the target, I, and they should not be the target. But, you know, let me just Chris, say this. Let me, the, 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 let me just one second. In that, in the end, I, and I've said it before, it's tough politically incorrect, but you need parents who value education. They don't have to be smart. They don't have to be the smartest person, but they have to value their kid's education. And I say this, I worked in the child abuse unit. Guy punches a kid in the stomach and ruptured his spleen. That's child abuse. Right, but if the child of an know, opioid no, addict also deserves no, a good no, education who can't I agree, apply to the child school. I, I agree, but I agree with that. But there's a lot of other people who don't, who are indifferent. And then let me finish: is that you destroy a kid's organ by doing that? Well, your brain's an organ too. And if you don't help your child develop that organ, your brain, his brain, one way or the other, or help get people to help him develop that, that's neglect. See, it only took a half hour before we got emotional. <laughs> but that, that's um, if, I, if I could, just uh, I had not thought of until Chris raised it, the, the idea that the, um, the Vogue is a, is a competitor. I consider it a healthy competitor of the, the regular part of the system. In my district, I've got three different Vogue schools that you know, thrive and do very well. Uh, but as to the charter, the only thing, and it, it's, it's well described out there that uh, the center describes about the money following the child, with all respect, it's really not an honest argument because if you take, I'll just make up a percent, if you say we're going to take 5% and let that money follow the student, it's not that the New Bedford School District can say, okay, well, 5% fewer faculty or 5% uh, fewer classrooms or infrastructure or utility costs. The system that it takes to run a challenging district like New Bedford uh, you take that 5%, it's everywhere. It's in every building, and you can't, because there are too fewer students this, this fall in you know, a particular teacher's class, uh, 
the city is still obligated to to provide that service. So the money following is the money gone. Uh, and uh, you can say it belongs to the parents, but actually when we pay taxes, it's then part of the commonwealth, uh, which is a word that I think you have to always keep in mind about Massachusetts. Uh, I don't pay in a tax bill what I think is fair for education, fair for this. We do trust the elected people. We give them our consent to uh, make these decisions uh, on our behalf. And with education, on this one, I agree with the mayor. Uh, I also expressed a letter, as, as Tony Cabral and, and Chris Hendricks did, that to have an impact all at once on New Bedford of just over 1,200 seats in uh, on the school department's budget given the way we currently handle it which is i think inadequate you know in terms of the state uh, making up the difference i think is is really too much of a burden to put on the new bedford school system uh that 1200 i think that's been requested whatever the exact number i think is is too much so is there consensus in the legislature to link charter funding to whatever education reform you settle on no. I don't think I've heard that discussion. No, no, I think no. that would be uh, beyond the capability that we started today's discussion of what are we going to do on Chapter Seven. Let's but let's remember that the that the focus on the on the funding formula reform was the big four items, right. and we tackle those four items, then we can start looking at some of the other things that are affecting how we fund our schools, whether it's the, the Vogue school issue and the charter issue, but I think we need to keep a focus. Let's get these big four taken And there's care consensus of. on the big four? There, there is well, more there or less? Consensus on the topic, not on the yeah. details. No. Well, yeah, well. Know that we have to address these, but the <laughs> addressing it but it, because because the house bill did not address um, ELL last last no. year, right? Yes, it did. Well, yeah. I mean, it did by saying let's do let's study this and come up with a formula. I mean, I represent New Bedford. I'm not defending just the Senate bill. I'm just speaking pure numbers. The Senate bill meant millions of dollars more for New Bedford. That's the bill I want. So where is the house on the ELL Hundreds question? Hundreds of actually, over years. I, I don't think there's a consensus view within the house, but as to whether. Uh, uh, there was a bill in front of the conference committee that said, FY19, we're going to spend X million, FY20 this, FY20. No, that wasn't even in Section 5 of the Senate bill either. Just said, we will pick a number every year. Well, we know that. Uh, what I think is real ed reform is, again, what we did, Mark as well, 25 years ago, which is we said, here's the plan. In the next five fiscal years, here's what we're going to spend on Chapter 70. Do you like it? Do you not like it? Using this formula. And then everyone could run those numbers and say, what does that mean for New Bedford? What does that mean for Wellesley? What does that mean for Orleans? Anywhere you want it. We didn't have that this summer. We're going to have it this year in order for there to be a right. bill. Okay. So the, the beauty of, of this beast, because we don't operate in the legislature as a commonwealth. We may call ourselves the commonwealth, but we... As I mentioned earlier, we all have our own district dynamics. We have our, our own experiences we bring to the legislature. It's all well and good. It's, it's democracy. Um, but that's one of the reasons I'm 
relatively optimistic will solve most, if not all, of these. Because, and be careful. I don't want to eat my words in two years because I'll be very disappointed if we don't solve it. But we can disagree. So I disagree with Mike, uh, at least on some of the charter school aspects for the reason that you brought up, Jack. I, my responsibility is to, is, is to help prevent even segregation among the poorest of the poor. So if you're fortunate enough, uh, I certainly didn't grow up in a family with a lot of money, but I was fortunate enough to have two parents at home cared about education, and they very well may have, uh, in fact, did for part of my education choose a, a uh, um, private Catholic school because they were responsible enough to say, uh, that's where we want you, and we're going to go out of our way, and we're going to transport you every morning. Um, lots of kids today, that's not their reality, and, and the decision should not be made for them. So I like the opt-out. It gets me closer to... Um, to support, but I would also suggest that more has to be done. Uh, you know, I've questioned the charter school, uh, uh, the guy who runs the charter school, and I mean, they claim they go in and they recruit, and, and all these things are wonderful, but at the end of the day, if you have to set up a separate system, you're admitting, um, in a sense, failure of the general system. So I don't think we should just throw money at it. I agree with some of the statements that have been made that with it has to come the reform, it has to come, you know, an, an update from 93 isn't just the formula. But again, the beauty of it is you, the votes are not there to fix the charter school controversy. The votes are not there to make suburbanites feel good. The votes are not there to simply fix a formula that benefits gateway cities. But if you cobble it all together in the same broad negotiations, I do think this term, there's enough pressure to get it done because the difference that we have, we meaning like-minded or like uh, demography, uh, uh, demographics, and that includes gateway cities, includes populations where there is a high uh, English language learner or low-income uh, uh, student population, um, it's not an exaggeration to say that it's more crisis than luxury. It's wonderful to get minimum aid and to say I can you know, Bill, I think, I think, was it Newton that built the $200 million school, Mike? I mean, come on. Yeah, the Taj Mahal. You know, they should have been embarrassed. Well, that's why we changed it. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course, we changed it after the horse. Right. That was a long time ago. I just closed by saying, I think it would be a mistake to try to fix these piecemeal, because then you peel off, and that's why I'm glad that the final bill last year wasn't just a bill that dealt with health care and special ed, because you might never get to the low-income and English language learner. And for those that really want to fix uh, charter schools, you might never get whatever fix you're looking for. And one, of course, is, is the funding uh, formula. If you, if you believe, as Mike did, that it follows a student, but as Bill said, there are some fixed costs, then there's a great way to, to, to let the market, uh, in, in the, at the end of the day, have some influence, but not a drastic shock. Make sure that those fixed costs are you know, amortized over a number of years. But if you fund, if you underfund it, and the funding gets even less during during a uh, budget crisis, then the charter schools are designed to be controversial. Well, one suggestion that's been made recently is that to, to fix the problem, Mike, of a city like New Bedford with a big charter coming in. Uh, if the funding formula isn't fixed adequately, is just have them take over an individual school that is struggling, so that you that you solve the opt out problem that Mark was talking about. So, in other words, you don't have them getting all the engaged parents, all you know, all the parents who really, but you know, isn't that what happened to... at the Parker School? They came down, the state came down to the turnaround program. No. The night, the night of, the whole school, all their parents were invited, 
if I remember correctly reading this, this is eight, ten years ago, um, 12 parents showed up. This is the local charter school who has strong relationships yeah. with parents now. No, I know. But, I mean, a new the idea that was the state running it, not a charter. Yeah, running it. so but, I don't think it's quite the, idea, the same. It's the idea of having that, the idea of having engaged parents is a huge right. factor. Is. I mean, mm-hmm. we can we can keep throwing money and money and money, but at the end of the day, you need to look at Mark just talked about it. You look all the you have to have people who value it. You don't have to be great at it, but you have to value it and know that this is going to make my kid's life better. Now, are there people who are un, unable to do that, incapable of doing that? Yes. And those are the people why we have special ed, why we have all these other programs within our schools to assist in that. It should be a crutch that people could rely upon, but it shouldn't be something that, because of a lack of effort, and simply that, oh, I don't feel like going to a parent-teacher conference. Oh, I don't feel like doing that as a parent. That's absurd to me. Absolutely absurd to me that parents would do that. It's reality, so, though. So yeah, no, but, but it is. It, 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 it is. But, but there's a difference between parents who are incapable of doing it, and then there are people, parents, who are just disinterested. But you're not going to write off those children. You, because No, you're not. Have, you're not. But the, car, the, the, the idea of... We, we need to have like a serious discussion with the idea of the value of parenting in the education world. So we will, the, will the legislature be talking about accountability measures and things other than dollars in these four areas as you go forward? I'm this? sure. Is that I, on the table or is that sort of? I expect amendments. I would when you get a floor debate, I, I would hope that uh, you're going to see amendments in both chambers uh, where people will... will Force uh, the discussion of some of those those policy uh, issues on accountability. Uh, Whether it happens or not, that's yeah. another question. But there'll certainly be discussions. AIM is already pressuring the legislature for additional, you know, um, yep. for any additional money requires additional accountability. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not agreeing. Okay, because the the accountability issue. Is why you have such different opinion at the vocational school now. The, the vocational schools had to pass the NCAS. When I was a kid, uh, those kids at the vocational school were not going to be able to pass the NCAS. They were going to be great carpenters and electricians, but they were not going to be able to do the English and the math. And then, no, mainly because they gave them shitty academics. Absolutely. Look absolutely. at the curriculum back. So, but, surprising but, you could even get through it. But anything. when you require a public school, vocational or otherwise, to pass the MCAS, you're going to increase the academics there. That parents now say, um, this is not a bad alternative. Uh, you know, not cosmetology perhaps or, or hairdressing, but you know, uh, the kids coming out of the book are not going to Harvard and Princeton. But, but they're going to Stonehill and Northeastern and Wentworth. That's pretty darn good. But they have to pass the MCAS. A couple of them are every year going to them. Yeah, they are, but they were but, homeschooled before they got to the, to the vote. Yeah, but, the, uh, I, but the, still. I, the idea, no, I agree with you. I think. But it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not the, um, it's not the wasteland of public education that it was when I was in the 60s and 70s. It, it can't be. You can't yeah, require MCAS and, and, and do I know, that. but what? What's the alternative for kids who are have no interest in academics and are behavioral issues? And a lot of the times in the 
they're not necessarily uh, together either. But just say a kid who has no interest in academics yep. and wants to go into a trade. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. You know what the problem is? Get... The model is wrong. Yeah. We took the 1960s model and it's 2019, two separate yeah. schools. Why are we running two separate schools? Okay. Okay. Chris, Chris hits on a really important... I hear this. I, you know, yeah. I, I grew up and live in the building trade world. That's my life prior, other than that. And I'm hearing from all the trades, whether it's plumbing, electrician, sheet metal, you name it. The Vogue School, we're not, the kids aren't going there to become auto no, body right. technicians or... You know, I can hire as apprentice plumbers and, and make a good living. And I always joke because my friend with the biggest boat, you know, and the most vacation homes is a plumber, you know? It's out uh, of whack. Yeah, yeah you know. Can I tell you about Westport? <laughs> <laughs> can, can I just okay. bring this back? That's okay. So Chris makes a, a, raises a really good point, but I think when, when and getting back to Susan's point, is we got to focus on these four. There's a, when we talk about education, there's a lot we can talk about. We can talk about early childhood, the fact that Mississippi has universal pre-K. Are you kidding me? And we don't in Massachusetts. Um, but right, you know, let's focus on the big four. Then we can talk charters. Then we can talk vocational school realignment. Then we can talk about early childhood. Well, that's close to a billion dollars also. Susan, can you talk a little bit about a subject like where him, where... where they have felt that the funding formula was really unfair to them. You have large blue-collar pockets. I know Westport yep. does. Yep. Um, Indeed, and the, we have the Vogue School, Upper Cape Tech, that is doing some serious, serious harm to Same thing as, yeah, as the Bedford. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I mean, it's a little off the, the, the education topic, but um, Upper Cape virtually recruited many... Uh, I don't want to say almost all of Wareham's really good football athletes (laughs) to a point where, you know, I mean, it's just it's just one of those things. I mean, the the athletes. (laughs) Stangwall. Wareham is so. So, what do people in Wareham want in the funding formula? What what do do they want addressed? Oh, everything needs everything needs to be addressed. I mean, there's again. I think there's an understanding that we have to that we have to start at point A and get something done, and then you know again look at the broader picture. Uh, but but Wareham is in in this in a lot of the same situations that New Bedford is in again on a smaller somewhat smaller scale with special education needs and English language learners. Uh, we have a lot of out of district kids coming in, um, homeless issues where, you know, we're, we're transporting those children, we're educating those children. Um, it's, you know, we're, we're a smaller town with, with the same big city, big city issues. Are there losers if we go forward with these four points? Are there some suburbs that are losers in a bad way? I have, every year, anyone, whether colleagues or local school officials, for the last 20 years, I have yet to see a community or a school district that has any other view but that if we just reform the formula, we'll get more money. 100% of the school districts think reform of the formula means 
you know, what was unfair to them will be fixed and they will get uh -huh. more money. That can't so, be right. <laughs> it can't be. No, it's it's like that town where everybody is above average. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, I thought that was only on Mattapoise at night. It's in Minnesota. Uh, and so the political reality is that if you reform it so that everyone gets more money, it costs more money. And everyone has to... Legislators, I mean have to be prepared for that reality. When we, uh, the current formula, and I, I, I used to have the numbers at my fingertips, 20 to 25 years ago, the population of the public school system in Boston was at a certain level. We have never penalized them. As we've added to Chapter 70 over the years, uh, we have held everybody harmless, even to the point where, not to pick on Boston, there is a huge drop in student population. I mean, in the order of 10, 20, 30 percent. Fewer students being taught, but the funding levels have never dropped, to, even though the original formula was based on student population. Mark, Mark knows, he's seen this in the room. So everyone believes they will get more money out of reforming the formula and they probably will in order to accomplish what Mark has talked about, which is where you're going to find the votes. Yeah, so, and so you the know, answer, the answer you know that there are, no, there are no losers or it wouldn't end up surviving. But there are relatively, uh, there are people who win relatively less. And in most cases, there are communities who shouldn't win anything. That's the whole point of ed reform was to actually, actually add some heft to the myth that everyone has equal access to a good education. So in a sense, by its nature, it was an affirmative action program. And we've gotten away from it with things like minimum school aid. I mean, it, 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 why don't we just call it what it is? We are paying you off because we need your vote. I mean, give me a break. No one loses. And the folks who win should be, and that's why it shouldn't just be money. That's why it needs careful thought on what the formula should look like. That's why all of these things should be considered together. But this notion that someone loses, I, I great example, I helped create the seaport bond. And there was a, you could fit on one hand the number of actual working commercial seaports that should have benefited. And I happened to be in a position where I had to listen to other members who wanted to change the language and earmark. And I mean, you would have had people claiming that Buttonwood Pond was a seaport. You know, I mean, it's just unbelievable. No. What about, what about the common world? Absolutely. Now everyone is a gateway city now. Yeah. Yeah. What about the achievement gap? And by the way, some of the folks who spend so much time talking about the outcome of the achievement gap, which is an income but you gap. You're the guys I, to change this, well, right? Well, yeah, I mean, but I can't force who gets elected in in, in some wealthy suburb around Boston, in, in La La Land, I'm sorry. I mean, it's like yeah. where, where you're building 200 plus million dollar schools and people are going to meetings saying, my kids won't survive unless you put a, you know, a cafe in the school. I mean, I mean. But the question you asked, yeah. at the end of the day, will there be losers? I don't see if there is a material amount of losers, you'll ever get the votes. I mean, I can tell you that when Ever a funding schedule is proposed, the first thing my staff does is run the numbers for all seven of my communities. Oh, we all do that. You know, what does this mean for my urban? What does this mean for Fall River, which receives now 88% of their school funding via Chapter 70? What does it mean for Westport, which is at 32%? Yeah. You know, currently. So, what does, That's you know, so reality. you run the numbers. And then we have to make a decision. Find some that, money. That either find some money or 
make a decision whether or not we think that funding formula is equitable enough amongst our amongst our breadth of community. I have a diverse <coughs> I have four of I have Rochester you know I mean yeah. it goes from one it, you name it I have I have a community of Somerset that saw 51% of their tax base disappear over five years now that money doesn't disappear. That just gets that's shifted to the residential and existing commercial users, and they've seen over a hundred percent increase over the last two years in their property taxes. So I, I checked in those numbers just to see in my office. Uh, so Boston currently has a student population of about fifty-six thousand students. They maintain a capacity in terms of classroom staffing for ninety thousand students, and we have never. Can you all put that on the table? <laughs> well, to on what the end? table. <laughs> so one, one quick question um, for the group is, um, some of you know, I, I was a uh, school committee member for 12 years, starting in, in the early 90s. So I went through the formula, right, and inherited the formula. And the formula was flawed from day one. But it got its votes to get passed. The case, responsible county, uh, got screwed because of the real estate side of it. Uh, and they always came in. And when they came in is where the uh, pothole money came from, right? So it was, we're not going to change the formula because we don't have the votes, but we're going to get this other part of money that will make you a little happy. So money is what, you're absolutely right. But in 1992-93, the formula wasn't, we didn't have the charter schools. So the money wasn't being stripped off to go to other places, right or wrong. And I'm not saying, I'm just saying the use of it. We didn't have that. We didn't have the healthcare costs. We even have the pension costs at the same levels where they are now that are not going to classrooms. That, that money is chapter seven money that's not going to classrooms. Um, I give you accolades if you can get the formula changed. Right? However, I'm not sure it's the formula that's, that, that I would be looking at. It's more money. It's paying 100% for regional transportation. It's paying 100% for the reimbursement. I mean, th those things are short-sighted. But if you're going to use a billion dollars someplace, fill in fill in the hundred percent formulas. I don't know if you'd get all the votes for that, but but who wouldn't? Uh, regional transportation affects uh, uh, almost every district has something to do with regional transportation. If you got a vocational school, you do, and and I think it's somewhere around sixty percent reimbursement now. It started up and then keeps getting cut down and down. Transportation costs are, are incredible. Yeah, we might have yeah, yeah, but, it, but it fluctuates, and yeah. you can't even budget for it because it yeah. fluctuates. It I, mean, I was the treasurer for the region, so yeah. um, I, I don't know what the schools wanted more money, right? What the school committees wanted more money. I don't think they really care about the formula as long as they're getting more money. I don't know where you go to get the votes to change that thing, because you can work with that Western Massachusetts group, that's a whole different set of school formulas where that goes, and the Cape is so much different than Wareham, right next door. It's, it's so different. I don't know where it, where it all goes. More money, and, and we know on this end of the table, the lawsuit's coming. Right? The, law, the lawsuit is what brought in Ed Reform, Rennie and Rebel, all those guys. I was part of the lawsuit, so so the, the next lawsuit's coming. And it's it's not... It's not any individual's fault at the legislative level. It's just times have changed. No, but I'm fine with the lawsuit. It's just like when people put something on the ballot. When the legislature doesn't do their job, people put it on the ballot. It, it, and, then, and, and then people complain in the legislature that it's a mess from the ballot. Do your job, it doesn't go on the ballot. Do your job, it doesn't yep. go to court. Very simple.
Peter, Peter, you don't want the court. You don't want the court deciding who gets what more money. No, if I have, and they I have a choice between a court case that forces the hand or the status quo. I'll take the form. Right. The court case did not. I was on the other end in ninety. I was actually on the finance committee, so I had to work with my school department to all the indirect cost sharing and everything. The formula in order to address this, the court case is very, very complicated. In an anecdotal story, we had a member of the Westport Finance Committee about 10 years ago um, who really wanted to delve into it. He had problems with the formula, so he delved into it. And the funny thing is he was a rocket scientist. He was a retired... Uh, Apollo John Miller. I mean, he he would. So, you're not a rocket scientist. No, he is a rocket yeah. scientist. The guy, <laughs> guy's great. And he spent about a month on it, including coming up to the state house to talk to like the three people that really understand the intricacies of this 30 matrix funding formula. And at the end of the day, he says, you know what? Hats off to them. It's so difficult trying to quantify which is such a qualified issue of your ability to pay and the wealth of a community. What is your ability? What is, that, you know, they did about as good a job in the formula. So to your point, Peter, you're correct. It's, you know, we don't fund charter school reimbursement at 100%. We, have a, we don't fund regional school transportation at 100%. And also, I think some of the responsibility has to go back on the local municipalities. In 2010, we had no money, right? We're, but communities where Municipal Relief Act, or whatever the hell it was called, you know, how many communities opted into the state GIC? If health insurance is your driver, where we are all belong to the GIC, where we're seeing one or two percent premium increases, where local municipalities are seeing 12 to 14 percent, well, why aren't they in the GIC? Because the municipal unions no, to No, they don't have to. We, we passed it that they do not need, is out of collective bargaining. It's not a local municipality. No, the municipal unions lobby the city council. The city council, city council, right, but the city council can do it. So why haven't they done it? Because the municipal unions vote. They want us to make the hard decisions. It's the same pressure on them as you. Right, but we made the hard decision. We faced the municipal unions when we said it's outside of collective bargaining because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And don't tell me it's not good quality insurance. Every judge, every state police trooper, Every college professor, they are all on. We have very good health insurance that we have to pay for, and no, it's not zero copay, or you know five, you know five, you know five ninety-five five paid. Like, so it isn't. It's more reasonable, but it's damn good. The private sector would love to have our health insurance options as state employees. So I think some of it falls. Back on the local municipality. I don't know. Mm -hmm. New Bedford adopt the GIC? I don't no. know. No. No, I don't know. I because like I said, I don't represent. No, it's New much Bedford. easier to say the state doesn't give us enough money. Right. Look at the trends and what we give in Chapter Where Seventy. Right. No, local aid. No. You know, even the charter school situation. I mean, I, I'm not in any way Thomas diminishing the impact, but it's less than ten percent of what the. I got all the millionaires over there. I feel even additional is. seven million dollars last year. I mean, it's like the state didn't give us enough. Come on. Take a hard decision. We have to do it all the time. So we do need to wrap up. And I just want to thank you all for coming. This yeah, has been really, been really, really helpful. Terrific. Does anybody need to make, do you all feel like you I, got I, to say what you I wanted like to, say, or? to say? I think Chris thing. said everything. <laughs> <laughs> As a good attorney, he wants to get the last word in. Everyone has mentioned what they were doing in 1993. I was still in school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can thank us for your good education. <laughs> <laughs> 
my parents. Okay. Thank you. Did you go to? Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.